0: Let's take our Bibles this morning, please, and open to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. No surprise if you've been tracking with uh, this series. The chapter uh, 10 in Revelation is about the fulfillment of God's Word. So I've entitled this, The Fulfillment of the Divine Word. In particular, it is about the fulfillment of God's word in coming to judge the earth and establish his righteous kingdom wherein his people will reign with him before he brings them into the new earth. When is that going to happen? The Bible talks about it. It talks about it in the Old Testament. Here John describes it in the New Testament. This chapter marks the fulfillment, the signaling of the fulfillment of this promise. Let's begin reading in verse 1. Where we saw this last week, and we'll finish up this text uh, this morning. John writes Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. It was a big angel. And called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven. I believe this is the Lord Jesus' voice who who told John, write what you see in a book. He's the one that says, don't write this. He says, seal up what the seven thunders have said. Do not write it down. the prophets. We can summarize in just a couple of sentences everything that is going on in Revelation to this point. The Lord Jesus, the Lamb, takes the scroll from the hand of the Father and breaks open the seven seals so that it can be opened, revealing the series of judgments that God will unleash upon the earth, which vindicate him and his people before he comes to establish his kingdom. When the scroll is finally opened, this series of seven judgments are announced by seven angels, each sounding a trumpet. The first four trumpets announce unprecedented devastation on the earth as God systematically destroys his creation. And we saw this in chapters eight and nine. Trumpets five and six release terrible suffering and death upon a third of the earth's people, at least a third of those who still survive at that point. But in chapter 10, it's like the pause button is pressed on the narrative. And a mighty angel, big enough to put one foot on the land and one foot on the sea, announces that the end has now come. And notice what he says here. When that seventh angel blows his trumpet... There are seven more judgments, more terrible than the ones before, that will come in rapid succession. It doesn't say this here, but we find this out later on in Revelation. But the key here is when the seventh angel blows that trumpet... It all is going to come crashing to a conclusion. The judgments are poured out. Christ appears in glory, destroys his enemies, sets up his kingdom. Is the climax of all of salvation history before he leads us into the new earth. That is why the angel swears there will be no more delay. Literally, and this is important, he says there will be no more time. In fact, some of your translations still just say no more time. And that word time is what's important. He doesn't actually say the word delay. In fact, I was reading through the Greek New Testament this week, just looking at different words for delay. There's a lot of different ways that a Greek author could express the word delay. He doesn't use any of those. He says time. And I think he especially says it for a particular reason that we'll see as we keep going through this text. But I want you to pay attention to that word time. The angel is talking about that moment that the church has been waiting for, for nearly 2,000 years. I assume that John doesn't know this. I mean, he doesn't know that the 21st century is going to be a thing eventually, right? He doesn't. He doesn't know how long it's going to go. He doesn't know that we're still waiting for what he described all this time. John is simply instructed to write what he sees and what he hears, and sometimes he's instructed not to see or to write what he hears, as we saw. Why do we have this waiting? That's the question we posed last week. Why do we have to wait? What's the delay? Because the angel doesn't say, and think about it, sometimes you have to think about what what could have been said in the Word of God to appreciate what is said. Why does he simply say, it's here, we're done, it's coming? Why does he emphasize the action that's about to happen? He doesn't. He says there's no more delay. He calls attention to the fact that God says something will happen in his word, and we've been waiting for it for all this time, and now the waiting is over. I think that's really significant, that he calls attention to the fact that we've been waiting And it raises the question, why are we waiting? What are we waiting for? Furthermore, waiting for the fulfillment of God's word is typical for God's people. Think about it. Why did God promise Abraham a son? He was already too old to have one, and Sarah was too old to have one. He made him wait 25 more years before Isaac was born. Why does God do things like that? Better yet, why did he promise Abraham, to you I will give this land, and then finally he brings his descendants into the land 500 years later in the Exodus and conquest? Why did God ask Samuel to anoint David king? Do you know how old David was when he was anointed king? 12 years old. Do you know how old he was when he became king over the tribe of Judah only? He was 30. And it was Eight years later that he was actually king over all of the tribes of Israel. That long. Why, when Isaiah said to Ahaz, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, that the world would wait for more than 700 years for this promise to be fulfilled? And as I said last last week, what about those times when this delay is personal? right? When we're praying and relying on what promises God has given to us, but we're waiting for him to answer, and it seems like the heavens are not saying anything to us. It's no wonder that the author of Hebrews defines faith in part as the assurance of things hoped for. In other words, they're promised, but they're not yet obtained because they're always in the future. And something else the writer of Hebrews says in that chapter that you know very well, chapter 11 of Hebrews, he says that the people who had been given the promises by God, he says they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. I mean, greeting promises from afar is like saying hello to your great-great-great-great-grandchild that you think is going to be born in the future. You know, Hello, <laughs> it's good to see you generations from now. That's the best you can do if you're already going to be dead and buried before that grandchild comes, that great, great, great grandchild comes in that generation. Jesus arrives in the gospels promising the kingdom and he does everything to prepare men and women to enter it, but he doesn't bring it. In fact, the delay of the promised kingdom is so profound in scripture that it has spawned a whole theological system that denies there's a literal kingdom even coming. I mean, how could it? Jesus said it's coming. It hasn't come. He must have been speaking figuratively because if he had kept that promise right away, there wouldn't be this theological system. It is the delay of the Lord's literal earthly kingdom that has given rise in part, I think, to some of our theology. I don't know. Maybe you're not bothered by the delay because honestly, you know, life's been pretty good so far. You have experience to look forward to. You have goals. You have earthly dreams. You want to get married and raise a family and serve the Lord and enjoy the blessings of life as you walk with the Lord. But the older you get, the more heartache and pain you experience, the more you see sin and depravity in the world and sense your own frailty and your own fallenness, I think the more you just yearn for that day to come. But for those persecuted believers that we're reading about here in in Revelation in the first century who originally received the revelation, their longing for the Lord to come and finally redeem them and bring this whole thing to a conclusion, their longing was palpable. That is why the souls of the martyred saints cry out from under the altar, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who are on the earth? So why isn't the word of God fulfilled right away? Why the delay between God's word promising something and its fulfillment? And we said last week, the delay between promise and fulfillment, I think is explained by three aspects of the nature of the word to begin with. The nature of the divine word that is given to us. And if we understand the nature of the word, I think it actually gives us hope and patience as we wait for the Lord's return together. So what are these aspects of the nature of God's word? Well, we covered the first one last week. Uh, The first aspect is the nature of the authority of the divine word. We consider the mighty angel coming down from heaven, claiming both land and sea. It's a picture of God's word ruling over the world. Just as God created the world through the divine word, he rules over the world through the divine word. That angel coming down and claiming land and sea with the open copy of Revelation in his hand means that God's word is over the whole world. And this explains why there is a delay between the word and the fulfillment. For just as God wisely controls what will happen in the world, he also controls when it will happen. The delay between the word and the fulfillment, the promise and the blessing, is an assertion of God's authority in the world. His wise control. God is not on our timetable. And the sooner we appreciate that, the sooner we learn to simply trust him both for the blessing and for the timing of the blessing. I think that's why the writer of Hebrews actually brings up the fact that these all died not having received the promise. He's talking to believers in Hebrews. Some of them had, uh, you know, people had gotten mad at them because they were believers and they were afraid of what the government was going to do. Living in and around Rome is probably where those believers were, were, were receiving the letter of Hebrews. And so they would drive them out of their houses, take their stuff. Sometimes they would be cast into prison. And and, and the writer says, you joyfully accepted these things. But the idea in Hebrews is that greater uh, persecution is coming. And he's trying to point to these that, look, they even went to the grave not having received it, but they knew it was coming and they rejoiced and they lived as if the promise was true. So we need to understand, first of all, that the authority of the word implies a delay. God is going to test us. God is going to assert his authority. The when is coming in God's timing. There's a second aspect to the nature of the divine word that also explains the delay, and that's what we want to pick up with this morning. The second aspect of the nature is the mystery of the divine word. That's its nature. It's a mystery. It's not only an authority, it's a mystery. And I want you to notice again In this text, verse six, the angel proclaims that there will be no more delay, literally no more time, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced it to his servants, the prophets. What is the mystery of God? Well, the Bible uses the word mystery. Always referring to unknowable truth. Unknowable, that is, until God chooses to tell us about it. Until then, we cannot possibly know it. Now, we normally use the word mystery in a different way. Uh, we use it in the sense of something you can't find out about unless you investigate very carefully, follow the clues, use your powers of deduction, like Arthur Conan Doyle's famous character, Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes followed the scientific method. He was actually fleshing out uh, the scientific method in, in Conan Doyle's mind. But he followed the scientific method and used great powers of deduction to arrive at the truth that nobody could figure out, unraveling the mysteries by drawing the inferences from the clues. But that's not the kind of mystery talked about here. This mystery is truth that cannot be arrived at by mere investigation, even very keen and concentrate, a concentrated investigation, a mystery must be revealed by God. That's why, if you look at it, it says the mystery of God. That, that means the mystery revealed by God, the mystery that comes from God. There is a delay between God's promise and the time of fulfillment because it is the nature of God's word to hold mysteries that are not revealed until a later time. Some mysteries are hidden altogether. Some of you were here when we worked through Paul's letter to the Colossians, a wonderful journey through Colossians. It took us a while because I kept pausing, but we eventually got through it over the course of a couple of years. And the mystery in Colossians is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Who would have ever guessed that the Messiah would literally indwell His people, both Jews and Gentiles? It's something that would have never occurred to anybody reading through the Old Testament. Some mysteries are hidden altogether. Other mysteries are contained in the Old Testament, but we literally cannot make sense out of them or we get the sense wrong until God reveals the meaning. Last week, we ended the service with this benediction from Romans 16. We see it every once in a while. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery. That's why Paul was able to preach the gospel. God had revealed the mystery of the gospel. That was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, revealed. And through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about obedience of faith. God is revealing through Paul and the other apostles the meaning of what the prophets wrote, but did not themselves even understand. Here in Romans, Paul is talking about how the Abrahamic covenant was finally fulfilled so that Gentile nations were blessed. And we can look back at the Old Testament and, and we can see that this, something like this was going to happen, but now we see exactly what God was talking about. But unless the meaning had been revealed by God himself, it would still be obscure to us today. We really wouldn't understand what it means. In fact, even as Paul wrote this benediction in Romans, I think think about this. There were still mysteries that had not been revealed that Paul didn't know. Until about 30 years or so after Paul went to be with the Lord... That's when the Lord Jesus appeared to John on the island of Patmos and revealed to him to give his church and to give us more truth about these purposes of salvation. We're reading in Revelation, Revelation. When we open the book of Revelation, in fact, in the original Greek language, the first word, and I mean the literal very first word in the entire book to meet our eyes is the word apocalypsis. It's the word that means uncovering, revealing, hence revelation. What I'm showing you here, I don't have to show you actually, but I thought it was really interesting. This is actually a picture of the oldest Greek manuscript that we have to our knowledge that contains the book of Revelation. It's from the fourth century. That's the 300s, the first Century in which Christians were free to make copies of the Word of God without feeling like they are going to go to their deaths for it. And that time, they would copy the, the script, the, the text, in, in these columns side by side, and they wouldn't put any spaces in between the words. But the first word, like I said, is the word apocalypsis. I'll put it up there in English letters. The first line reads, the apocalypsis Jesu Christu, apocalypsis, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And those two letters there are Jesus, and those two letters there are Christ. Now, you wouldn't think that those two-letter words could spell the full names of Jesus Christ. But you see, those who copied the text treated the names of God and his Son and the Spirit, by the way, with great reverence. So they would write only the first letter of the name and the last letter of the name. And they would draw a line above those two letters to let the reader know that this is a nomina sacra, a sacred name. We can only imagine the joy and the awe that the persecuted believers felt who originally received the revelation about their Lord Jesus Christ as it was sent from John. And think about it. They got the scroll. They, they wouldn't have been using a codex at that point, an open book. It was a scroll, and they got it, and it was, it was probably sealed. And they broke the seal and rolled back the scroll to reveal the first word, apocalypsis, of Jesus Christ. And unveiling and uncovering further information about Jesus Christ and his purpose for the church and his assurance that he would keep his promise. And remain with them and bring them to glory, and they would not only dwell with him in his kingdom but actually reign with him. And this isn't the first time that God revealed something about the end time mystery. What the Lord is showing John in Revelation is an expanded version of the same time period that God actually revealed to Daniel the prophet. And we've got to go to Daniel several times before we get through Revelation. You, you if you, unless you've read these two side by side, especially the last part of Daniel, it's really hard to see that they really track together in so many ways. But I want to demonstrate that just really briefly this morning. If you will keep your place there in Revelation and turn to Daniel chapter 12 and starting at the beginning of that chapter. In the second half of the book of Daniel, you have to understand the context, Daniel is struggling to understand what is going to happen to the people. I mean remember they're in exile. They're they're not allowed to go back to their homeland yet. They were conquered by Babylon, now they're under Persian rule, and God had told them, you know, stay there, pray for the peace of the city, be good citizens. But Daniel's asking, is God going to be gracious to us? Is he going to allow us to return to the promised land? He was reading the prophet Jeremiah, and Jeremiah had said something about 70 years, and it would be done, and God would bring them back. And he started praying. He's like, Lord, when did that 70 years start? Did it start with with Nebuchadnezzar's first invasion? (laughs) I hope. His second invasion or his third invasion? How close are we getting? And he's praying about this in the last part of, of the book of Daniel. So God sends angels to reveal to Daniel many things that are going to happen in the future. But some future things are not for Daniel to know yet or to understand. They remain to him, as it were, a mystery. And in chapter 12, we're picking up the end of a longer narrative in which God has already revealed things to Daniel that are important for our study of Revelation. But if we can just start at the beginning of chapter 12 this morning, And as we read, I want you to pay attention to the word time. I went ahead and underlined them for you on the screen if you want to look there. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. And we've read about that time already in Revelation. But at that time... Your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt that also describes the book of Revelation. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, notice, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end, he says. The book of Daniel, which ends with the angels explaining to Daniel enough of the end times for him to realize that God will be faithful to his people and save them, also ends with the command to roll up the scroll and seal it. In other words, this is all of the information that will be given at this time. The rest will remain a mystery not able to be figured out yet. But there was one more piece of information Daniel was about to receive. Verse 5 says, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, two other angels, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, he's the one that's been talking to Daniel this whole time, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? Notice, when is the delay going to be over? It's a theme throughout the word of God. When is it going to be over? How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the water of the stream. And he raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever. Does it sound familiar? That it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. And what does Daniel say to this? He says, I heard, but I did not understand. In other words, it remained a mystery. And Daniel really wants to know what this mystery is, so he says, "Oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things?" And the angel says to him, "Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end." What time Well, that's what I'm trying to tell you. Revelation chapter 10 is when God says, okay, the time is done. It is now time for the end. And turning back to Revelation chapter 10, we find the gigantic, magnificent angel with the little scroll in his hand. And what do we see without the scroll? It's open. Am I saying this is what the one Daniel had to close up? I have no idea. I, I don't think so. I think just representing the fact that now we can know. now the mystery is over. John's going to reveal something here that was hitherto unknown before g- the Lord Jesus gave it to him on the island of Patmos. And starting in verse five, we find a scene that is reminiscent of the one we saw in Daniel. Chapter 12, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. Just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. What mystery? This is the mystery. It's what Daniel was speaking of. In Daniel 12. In Daniel 12, the angel with hands raised toward heaven swears by him who lives forever and ever that there will be time that must elapse between God's uh, promise and when his people realize the promise and are delivered. And he says that it will be be for time, times, and half a times. And that seems to be a year, two years, and a half a year. It's a really fancy way of saying three and a half years. You say, why can't prophecy just be a little clearer you know just say three and a half years then that's not this is we have, we're not talking about the nature of prophecy but that's the nature of prophecy uh they it, it it god tells us things in prophecy where if we're just casually observing it we'll go away with no answers whatsoever but if we are interested in god's word and we pour into it and we really want to to seek we can have understanding about what he's saying that's the nature of prophecy The angel's referring to, I believe, the second half of the seven-year tribulation period, three and a half years. Now, do you know how when the Lamb opens the first four seals back in chapter 6, revealing an intense period on the earth of uh, war and bloodshed and uh, famine and uh, wild beasts attacking people and and pandemic and, and, and so forth, and all those things are happening on the earth, Those terrible things will come upon the earth at least in the first three and a half period of the tribulation period. Some of the effects of them may continue, but it seems to be referring to the first three and a half period, or in general, what's going to be happening in the tribulation period in all seven years. But the six trumpet judgments we've been looking at seem to take place during the second half of the tribulation. And when the seventh trumpet blows, seven more judgments are poured out. We'll see that in chapter 16 in rapid succession at the end as the Lord returns. What the Lord reveals to John is that the waiting is over at that point. What was a mystery to Daniel is made clearer to John in order to give the Lord's persecuted people hope. The angel reveals to Daniel that there are certain times that have to take place first, but the angel reveals to John that there would be no more time So now we have time, times, half a time, and no more time. And the Lord Jesus Christ appears. This is a mystery being revealed to us from God. It is the nature of his word. Moses told the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. Why is there a delay between God's revealed word and his fulfillment? Because of the nature of God's word. First, it is sovereign because he himself is sovereign. And his word is an expression of his sovereignty over his creation. God is not in a hurry for our convenience. The delay is an expression of his control, teaching us to trust him. But second, there is a delay between God's revealed word and its fulfillment because it is the nature of God's word to hold mysteries yet to be revealed. And if everything that God spoke immediately came to pass, there would be no mystery. So there is the built-in delay to God's word. And both of these aspects of the divine word call us to worship God as we stand in awe of what he is doing in the world to bring to pass all that he has spoken now, there is one final aspect of the nature of God's word that teaches us why the delay. And this we find in the last section of the chapter, really starting in verse 7. And it is the proclamation of the divine word. There's something about the nature of the word in its proclamation that teaches that there's going to be a delay. This is what John is calling, uh, is being called to do. In this chapter, he's being called, he's being reminded, we have have more for you to do, John. We have more prophecy for you to proclaim. He is called in this chapter to proclaim, to bear witness, so that all will know what the Lord is revealing. And I want you to start reading in the the middle of verse 7, where it says, "...in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced." Just as he announced to his servants, the prophets, then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it, and it was sweet in my, as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is about the proclamation of the word of God. The, the whole idea is in this last part of the chapter. In verse 7, the angel says that the mystery given by God would be fulfilled, notice, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then in verse 11, he tells John, you must again prophesy. The angel is connecting what John is doing in Revelation with the Old Testament prophets. So I think the best way to approach this is to quickly visit the two examples in the Old Testament where God called his prophets to minister the word to his people, and we find the same kind of idea, the same kind of imagery as we read here in Revelation. So really quickly, and you don't have to turn here. I'm going to go pretty quick to these texts, and I'll have the, the, the text on the screen here. But in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, when the Lord called Jeremiah to deliver his words of judgment upon Israel, Jeremiah recounts, Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, and to overflow, to build, and to plant. And you follow those, uh, those uh, infinitive phrases. Not only do we have the destruction, we also have the rebuilding, the restoration, the redemption. That Jeremiah is preaching. So Jeremiah is called to proclaim what God will do in judging and then restoring his people. So later in the book, Jeremiah says in chapter 15, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. The idea of consuming words internally means that you are making the words a part of you so that you become one with the message, so that the message just pours out of you. You may know the expression, some people just bleed politics, right? Some people just bleed sports. Some... Uh, bleed this interest or this profession. You start talking to them about anything. You can go up and innocently ask, hey, I think it's going to be nice weather this week. And the conversation will soon turn to that point of interest that they have. And they know so much about it and it's consuming their thinking. That's the idea here. I can say the name Rush Limbaugh. And those of you who listen to his radio program for any length of time already have topics in your mind he would talk about. You have phrases that, that you know that he would say because it just poured out of him all the time. That's, the, that's being consumed with your message. He's a, he was a modern-day example of that. But when God called his prophet Ezekiel, he made the idea of consuming the message explicit. God tells Ezekiel in chapter 2, but you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house that I'm sending you to preach to. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me. Behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me. It had writing on the front and on the back. In other words, there was a lot to talk about, a lot to preach. My notes have writing on the front and on the back, by the way. I mean, metaphorically, okay? And there were written on it words of lamentation, And mourning and woe. And he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give to you. And fill your stomach with it. And I ate it and in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And he said to me, son of man, go to the house of Israel. And speak with my words to them. Somebody asked me last week did Ezekiel or John actually eat the scroll? I mean, how do you actually, how do you eat a scroll? Was it like a fruit roll-up or something? You know, some, something made edible, you know, to, to put in your mouth? And my answer to that question, and we can talk about this later if you want, but my answer to that question is, of course Ezekiel and John eat the scroll. But you have to keep in mind that they are seeing all of these things and participating in them in an otherworldly vision. Earlier in Ezekiel 2, before he eats the scroll, Ezekiel says, and God spoke to me, and the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And John says in Revelation uh, chapter uh, 1, verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And it was in the Spirit that he saw the glorified, risen Christ. And in chapter 4, he heard a voice from heaven inviting him to behold the throne room of God. And John says in Revelation 4, 2, at once I was in the Spirit, and I beheld. So John is going to say the same thing in chapter 17. He's going to say the same thing in chapter 21. John has been invited to participate in things that are on the other side, as we say, through the veil. And that doesn't mean, as you might be tempted to think, that John was eating the scroll in a less real sense. The way I look at it, it actually means that John was eating the scroll in a more real sense, more real than anything he had ever experienced that he had eaten outside of that world uh, that he was entering into, in the world that he lived in now. If you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, he is eating the scroll in Aslan's country. And I'll leave it there. So in Revelation 10.10, John took the scroll, and he ate it in the spirit, like Ezekiel's experience. And it was sweet like honey, but after he ate it, his stomach was sour, it was acidic. He felt sick inside. When we read the prophecies of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, both of them express the idea of joy or the sweetness of the word when it's consumed. They don't mention in the metaphor of the eating the bitterness, but their message was bitter. You get the same idea when you read what they're preaching. But what does John mean that it was sweet in his mouth but was bitter in his stomach? I think he's talking about the tension between the fact that God's word is always sweet But sometimes what the word says is heavy, it's convicting, it's frightening, it's horrifying. David says in Psalm 1910 that God's word is sweeter than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Psalm 119, 103 says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And I know that if we went around and shared testimony, you would probably affirm so many times God's word was sweet to you and met your need at just the right time and strengthened you and, and, and caused you to stand on your feet. But you also know as well as I do that not everything that is contained in the word of God is fun to read about, and that includes many of the passages in Revelation. And as we read of unspeakable judgments and torments being poured out on humankind, and yet they will not repent, and as we anticipate further judgments later on in the prophecy, especially those horrifying words, whoever's name was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The most horrifying chapter, I think, in all the word of God. They are bitter words for us to swallow. And when we read of believers who are being martyred in terrible ways, our heart aches for them. But what is at the heart of this idea is the proclamation of the word. And I want you to notice two qualities about this proclamation that consumes John. The first quality is that the proclamation has a prophetic heritage. We notice here that John is not beginning a new line of prophets, as I mentioned. He is connected to the line of prophets we read about in the Old Testament. So John's message is not brand new. It's not like nobody's ever said anything about this before. It has deep roots that connect to the prophetic word in the Old Testament. John is standing in the honored tradition of God's prophets. The second quality of this proclamation I want you to notice is that it is actually good news. It's called good news. I want you to notice again in verse 7. The angel says uh, to John, In the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Do you know what that word announce is in the original Greek language? You will recognize it. Euangelizo. You have this word in your vocabulary, you just don't know it. You, You pronounce it differently. You say evangelize. That's how we pronounce it in English, but it's a Greek word through and through. It means I proclaim the good news or I proclaim the gospel. Or I preach the gospel. It's the same word Paul uses when he tells the Romans, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Or the Corinthians, Christ has sent me to to preach the gospel. In fact, we could read verse 7 this way. The mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he proclaimed this good news to his servants, the prophets. This was a message that God gave to his people that was good news for them if they remained faithful to him, but it was also a message of judgment on their enemies who refused to follow God, to turn from their sin and follow him. The gospel is a sweet message of salvation and heaven and blessing and hope for those who receive it. But the gospel is also a bitter message of sin and judgment and hell for those who reject it. The gospel is bittersweet. And our temptation is to emphasize the sweetness of the gospel and shy away from the bitterness of the gospel. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Imagine if that's what they had told the Apostle Paul when when, when the Lord met him. Maybe Jesus himself. We love you and we have a wonderful plan for your life. And, And that plan probably was not working out when he was in the Philippian jail, having been beaten to within an inch of his life. God does love us. And he has a wonderful plan for us who, who embrace Jesus Christ for our sins, for salvation. But that's not the full story. And today, there are whole religious movements based upon a mischaracterization of the sweetness of the gospel without saying anything about the bitterness of the gospel. People have to know that they're lost without hope, condemned to an eternity in hell, and in fact are simply biding their time, waiting for uh, judgment while living in a cruel world before they know to reach out for the goodness of God, the good news that God has done everything possible through Christ that's needed. It is death and resurrection to transform them, to bring them to glory, to give them a new life and a new hope. Now, these two qualities of the message that consume John, its connection to the Old Testament prophets and the fact that it's good news, these two messages teach us why there's delay between God's word and his fulfillment. The prophets have been proclaiming this bittersweet message of God's judgment and blessing since the Old Testament. And the Messiah has still not arrived to bring the final judgment to conclusion and his kingdom to conclusion. So here in chapter 10, John is told to continue the same prophetic theme. He will again, as a prophet of God, proclaim the gospel. But still, close to 2,000 years later, in 2021, the Messiah has not yet arrived to bring this final judgment and establish his kingdom. Why? Because between the proclamation of the good news and the fulfillment of the bittersweet message of the good news, there has to be time that goes by giving those who receive the news an opportunity to embrace the good news, to turn from their sin to God. We will sometimes pray as we are encouraged to pray. The Prayer that's found at the end of Revelation. You know what that is, right? Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Have you ever said that and meant it? But when in our hardship or eagerness to meet the Lord... We pray for the Lord's soon return. We cannot be ignorant of the fact that we are at the same time praying for the salvation of the righteous and the condemnation of those who do not know God. The very delay in God's carrying out his divine plan, the delay that has caused the faithful to die having not received the promises, The delay that gives us discomfort as we wait longer for God's promises to be realized in our lives. This is the same delay that shows the world great mercy as God waits to bring his judgment. So if we wonder why the delay, why do we have to wait? Simply look to the nature of the word of God. The authority of the word implies a delay as we trust in the wise and good plan of God. The mystery of the word has a built-in delay as God, through salvation history, uncovers more of his plan as time goes on, bringing him glory. And we trust in that plan, and we know it's going to come true because everything else he's revealed that's already supposed to have happened has already happened exactly as he says it will. And the proclamation of the word is a merciful delay allowing us time to embrace the Savior the world, the, the, that the Word proclaims. How many of us would be here today worshiping with fellow believers if God had given us only one opportunity to hear and embrace the gospel, and that was it? How many would be here? So we are tempted at times to ask critically when it comes to the fulfillment of God's Word, why the delay? What's God waiting for? Why doesn't He act right now? Why doesn't He judge those wicked people? Who did those terrible things to those innocent ones? Why is he waiting to answer my need? Why do we have to wait for things? But when we realize that waiting is part of the built-in, necessary, merciful nature of the word of God, the question changes. It is no longer, why the delay? The question now is, what will we do with the delay? What we do with this necessary and merciful time that will pass before the bittersweet vindication of the righteous. What we do with this time is what we will answer to the Lord for. Will we as a church use this time to encourage one another, as the Hebrew writer says, exhorting and encouraging one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching? In other words, as the delay shortens. Will we allow this delay to increase our faith? Will we pray more and hope more and depend on God more? While well, we are waiting for him to bring his promised blessings. Will we take advantage of this merciful delay to increase our witness in the community. Let's not squander the delay, but let's use it for God's glory. Father, you